Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're here at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And we have a super special guest today, Christy Gustafson. So Christy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks really for having appreciate me. It. Appreciate absolutely. It. Absolutely. Well, um, I warned you a few of my questions are super long. Yes. So um, we'll get started. Um, as I was preparing for our discussion, I came across an article where you were talking about a story you once heard about a professor walking into class one day and announcing to the students that there would be a pop quiz. The teacher then proceeded to hand each of the students a piece of paper with a black dot in the middle and asked the students to describe what they saw. Each student described the dot, its size, color, and or location on the page. Not one student described the space around the dot. Reading this story, I couldn't help but think about one of the recurring themes of this podcast, which is how do we move from a me community to more of a we community? Or in other words, how do we focus more on those around us in this community we're all a part of and that we all share. At Community Foundation, I think you do this as well as anyone. So let's start here today. Could you share some guidance or thoughts on how we get more people to move from me to we? Well, this is tough. So I think the, the me to we problem is not just a problem that occurs in our community. I mean, I, I feel that this is sort of um, the way of the world shifting, um, as we are all a little less community oriented and a little more, um, singular minded, you know, one of the things that we try to do is pair up people with things they care about, because I think ultimately, if you're going to really get involved in your community, it has to be by something that personally drives you. And I think people are driven by so many different types of things. And so one of the things that we really try to get uh, people more involved in community by is, is connecting folks that are donors or would-be donors to causes they care about, connecting folks that would like to volunteer in some way with volunteer opportunities that they really care about, and then also by disseminating information. And so what I mean about that is, you know, I have the privilege of every day worrying about how to make this community better. And because I spend my time seeking a stronger community, I spend my time so often with people who are doing really good work. And a lot of those folks don't have a loud enough voice in the community either. And so what we try to do at Community Foundation is make sure that everybody's voice is heard and all of their good work is n acknowledged, that people are aware of it, that the folks that, that need whatever it is that they're providing are aware of it. Um, and so it's connecting people with resources is really kind of the bottom line of what I think you do to build a stronger community. All right, Christy, so you serve as the Chief Executive Officer of the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. In my opinion, one of the single most important organizations in our community. 
we will focus on some of your specific initiatives over the next hour, mm -hmm. but for the lay people out there who may not know what the Community Foundation mm -hmm. is, could you briefly describe its function and its role and responsibility as you see it for our community? Sure. I think the best way to describe it is by telling you why and how community foundations got started in the first place. So um, at the turn of the century, there was this um, gentleman who was a lawyer and then a trust banker, and he was very wealthy and lived in Cleveland. And he wanted to leave money to the city of Cleveland, which at that time there was no vehicle to do that. You know, what he wanted to do was make sure that some of the needs of Cleveland that were going to happen in the future that he was totally unaware of were going to be met by what he did. So he came up with this concept of using trust accounts, which are normally for the sake of individuals, for philanthropy, because they could respond over time based on the changing need of the community, right? And then because he's a banker, he was really smart to say, and you know what, if I take this money and I invest it and I don't spend all of it and I don't spend the principal, I can give way more back to the community over time. So what we do is we collect donor dollars, we invest them, and we give them back to the community by way of grants um, every year. Um, really simply, um, we try to make more money off of people's great philanthropic donations and then keep it going forever for the community. And we have a number of donors, particularly those that came along um, when Community Foundation first started, which was in 1961, who, you know, they may have started a fund with $500,000 and the fund's given a million and a half dollars in grants by now. I mean, that's pretty powerful. So. That's wonderful. And there are community foundations all over the country. All over right? the country, right. And the best thing is, is we're all non-competitive and they are so good at information sharing. You know, if we seek best practices from other community foundations all the time, which is lovely. Um way to information share. It's great. So one, one of the aspects of community foundation I most admire is how data-driven you are in your approach to understanding where our community needs you the most and prioritizing the grants and initiatives you oversee to tackle our most pressing and complex issues. One of the key tools in your approach is community counts an annual report card on the quality of life for the shreveport Bossier area. Data is tracked and collected in six categories, population, economic well-being, human capital, health, social environment, and physical environment. And compared to nine other peer communities similar in size and geographic location, as well as the Monroe MSA. Those communities, just so people know, are Jackson, Mississippi, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Fayetteville, Springdale, Rogers, Arkansas, Lafayette, some people say Lafayette, I say Lafayette, <laughs> Hunts, Huntsville, Alabama, Colleen, Temple, Texas, Montgomery, Alabama, Columbus, Georgia, Alabama, and Roanoke, Virginia. Talk to me, if you could, about the community counts process and how you use the data it provides to make resource, to make resource allocation decisions. Mm -hmm. So data is amazing um, if only if it's utilized, right? I mean, there's so much in this day and age, we have access to any and everything that we want to have access to really data-wise. But one thing that we felt was really important was combining all of the data that affects 
the strength of the community and the well-being of our citizens into one publication kind of as a gift to the community. Um, so it, you know, it provides information first and foremost, but it also helps guide our work. We hope guide the work of our nonprofit peers, as well as guiding the work really of um, city officials, parish officials, um, even state officials. So, you know, we, we have a finite amount of money that we can give out every year, and it's really important to us to be a good steward of the donations that we receive. And so we utilize the data to see, first, what's the real need in our community? And then second, where will our return on investment be really strong? And those two things sound like they're easy, but they're difficult propositions um, to, to work out every year. But we have to be data-driven if we really want to affect positive change. Um, you know, so often um, I find myself saying, you know, reminding the general public, remember a nonprofit is a business and should function as a business, and they need to show outcomes and return on investment for the work that they are doing to make sure that we're spending, you know, our precious dollars in this community wisely and to really affect change, um, positive change, right? So we have an economist at Louisiana Tech, um, Davey Norris and his wife Amanda. Um, they gather the data every year. The majority of the data comes from the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, there are... Um, Margins of error in the data, as there always is for U.S. Census Bureau data, as well as, you know, there are, um, in collecting the data, we're subject to the collection methods that the U.S. Census Bureau has chosen, right? So we adhere to what they have chosen to collect for better or worse, because that's what, you know, all of our peer communities are doing as well. So then we're, we're able to compare ourselves year, year over year. And really what's more important is tracking trends over time to make sure that we're not going in the wrong direction or, you know, if we've seen some real growth in an area, like I'll take um, high school graduation rates. You know, if we see continuing growth in high school graduation rates, we want to make sure that that continues, um, figure out what those best practices were, how we got there and that kind of thing. So it really does guide us every day. I think about it uh, more than uh, I think most people would want to think about it or believe <laughs> um, because, again, you know, we have a finite amount of dollars that we can give out. And I really want to make sure that we're doing um, the best for our community that we can do with those grants. So, so my next one's a little more of a softball, maybe. Okay. I don't know. Um, one of the biggest days of the year for you is Give for Good. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little about Give for Good, how it works, and when it is this year. Yeah. It's Tuesday, May 2nd. I'm so glad I remember the day. <laughs> it's always the first Tuesday in May. So Give for Good is basically an online giving day. And the reason that Community Foundations started Give for Good is, I mean, there are several reasons. One, we really wanted to provide a day of positivity and philanthropy for the community where, you know, many, many community members can come out, celebrate the good work that all the nonprofits in our community do and, um, you know, really lift up the community together. <clears throat> the second reason is, um, 
you know, we are really fortunate that we have some donors that have, um, are able to make large donations and able to start large funds and, and endow those funds. And that's amazing. But what we also want to encourage is small donations and small giving or smaller giving, um, through give for good, because, you know, we find that the gifts that are cumulatively given in give for good make a huge difference to the nonprofits. And then really it's a thank you from the community foundation to all of our nonprofit partners, because, um, we put the event on, uh, and receive no revenue from the event. Um, we, the community foundation puts $100,000 in the Lanyap Fund um, to bolster those donations. And we spend a lot of money on marketing the event because we feel like there are a lot of nonprofits that are very small and would not have the marketing budget or prowess to do that. And so we feel it's kind of like as we feel collective <clears throat> donations are much stronger collectively when we're all marketing together. Uh, about what we do, we have a much louder voice. And so we really feel like it's kind of a give, way to give back to our nonprofit partners because they get to raise unrestricted dollars. So whatever they choose to spend the funds raised, they can raise it on. And then, um, you know, get a little extra money through that lanyard fund. Um, so it's it's meant to be a day of positivity, a day of giving back, and a day of us giving back to our nonprofit partners. Is there any minimum amount someone can give? $10 okay. is the minimum amount. And it's um, giveforgoodnla.org. And you can go, It's if you are astute at online shopping, this is like the best thing for you. <laughs> you can just go pick out the nonprofits that you're interested in, take them to your cart and pay for them all at once. Um, and you can actually, the, the really neat thing is I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of work going on in the community that, you know, community members who don't do what I do every day don't, get to hear about. And so you can go on there and sort of search for um, things about subject matter to see, you know, who's doing interesting work in the arts community, who's doing interesting work in access for healthcare, you know. Um, and so it, it really, we hope it connects the community more with um, the nonprofit work that's happening. You know, again, it's a way that we're trying to get more community members to be involved in the community. And people can schedule their donations in advance, right? People, is it open now? Like people can go in now and start. It it is not open now, but it opens Monday, I believe. Is that April seventeenth or nineteenth? The Monday of that okay. week is when it when early giving opens. Okay. But the leaderboard doesn't go live until the day of, so you don't see. Um, it's always kind of really interesting to see. We can see it actually behind the scenes, but who is in the lead when midnight hits on Give for Good Day, you know, because there have been advanced gifts given. So, um, and, you know, we have some, you know, donor advised fund holders who give large amounts through their donor advised fund to Give for Good. Uh, and then we have, you know, donors who might give $10 and everybody's contribution is worthy and necessary for the community. And give people just a rough estimate of the amount of money you raise on, on Gift for Good or the amount of money that's raised on Sure. So last year we broke a record um, and raised $2.3 a little over in 24 hours. And I think we have raised over $16 million since the beginning of the event. And this year's actually our birthday. It's our 10th anniversary of Gift for Good. So we're excited about that. And I always... Um, I usually don't set a specific numerical goal, but of course I always want to 
you know, surpass what we did the previous year. <laughs> so, especially with inflation. Okay, I bet you will. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So. All right. So Community Foundation of North Louisiana brings people and resources together to solve problems and enhance our community. In the last few years, you've done some extraordinary work to address some of our community's challenges and shortfalls around early education. You once said, early childhood education is critical for a young person's brain development. We know now from research that 90% of a child's brain develops before the age of five. You established the Early Childhood Education Fund to expand access and enrollment in quality early child care by providing scholarships for children ages zero to three. Thanks to generous donor support and a one-to-one -one match from the state of Louisiana, and you may have to add or correct me on this, but I know you've secured over $2 million for this initiative. Yes. This was a transformative achievement. Uh, my question is, tell me, tell me the state of the fund today is the state still providing a match, and do you have the funds you need to provide all the scholarships requested? That's a, that's a lot of questions. Okay, let me go back. Um, I want to give you a tiny bit of background about how Please. we got there. So when I first got to the foundation, one of the first things I did was study community counts and to look at the data uh, for our community. And what one thing that really struck me was how low our kindergarten readiness scores are. Um, so every year when a child enters kindergarten for the first time, they're, they're assessed um, through this assessment that the state does statewide. And it basically indicates whether or not they're kindergarten ready. And so at that point, um, you know, the teacher may have to if a kid is behind and not kindergarten ready, you know, what a teacher's charged with doing usually is get advancing a child one year. But as you can imagine, if you have a number of kids that are not kindergarten ready, you are actually charged with advancing them more than one year educationally, right? <clears throat> so why does that even matter? Because what's really interesting is if you look at the scores of kindergartners and then the scores of first graders, the kindergartner teachers do an amazing job in both Caddo and Bossier Parish because the kids even the kids that aren't kindergarten ready are usually getting close to first grade ready. But what we find is around third grade, they start, they start to see a drop. And there are a lot of national studies that have produced strong correlations between kindergarten readiness and really educational success throughout your life. And not only educational success, but success um, in being healthy, um, not um, being involved with the juvenile justice system, not being involved with the criminal justice system later in life. So, you know, we think this kindergarten readiness exam is just one little marker in our children's lives, but in fact, it indicates so much more about statistically what their trajectory might be. And so we put together what we call the early the North Louisiana Early Childhood Education Summit in 2018. And when I say we, it was Community Foundation and Step Forward. Uh, that is an initiative of Community Foundation. And we brought together um, somewhere between 65 and 75 business leaders, um, local government leaders, um, the 
school superintendents, um, leaders from hospitals, to all talk about why are 60% of our kids not ready for kindergarten in both Caddo and Bossier Parish. And we had a lot of um, experts come and speak to the group about why brain development is so important. And the short answer is you can't get back the language growth that you need to make in your early years. You know, right after you're born from the time you're five, the synapses that are growing in your brain are some of the most important and you really can't make up that time, um, which is sort of terrifying if you're a parent and I'm glad I didn't know this when my daughter was born. <laughs> but um, so those early years are really important and language development is the most important and the only way that kids really get that language development is through um, high quality conversations with other individuals. In other words, your phone is not going to cut it, right? So to me, I was... I started looking around going, what are our resources available and what do we not have available? So when I, and this was a totally new subject matter to me at the time. So when I started doing research, I found we have, I'll just give Caddo as an example. In Caddo Parish, we have 55 type three childcare centers. Um, they, the, they're really interesting in that they are actually, they adhere to certain standards, curriculum standards and other standards that the state governs. However, they are privately owned facilities. And the state supports those by giving some funding called child care assistance. And it's CCAP is what most people refer to it as. But what I found and what was shocking to me is that you'd have hundreds of kids on the CCAP wait list wanting to get into a type three child care center, meaning um, their caregivers don't have the funding to pay for it themselves. They qualify based on their income levels, and they also qualify because they're either working or in school. So um, the easy answer to me was we've got all these families telling us that this is what they need and want, and we need to provide that. And, and the reason I think we need to provide it is several fold. One, all kids, no matter what neighborhood they're born in, should have equitable access to high quality learning when they're young. Two, if you don't have a safe, high quality place to send your child during the day, it is really difficult for you to go to work or to school um, and really affects um, employees, employers ac across the city, state, nation. And then three, really the long-term success of these kids depends on what they learn in those first few years. So. And the return on investment, there are lots of different numbers. There's a professor, I believe, out of Harvard named James Heckman who has studied what the return on investment for paying for kids to go to preschool is. And it's, it's you know, really quite high. Um, and so this is a major bang for your buck as far as the community is concerned. So that's what we, um, that's how we got started. And then we found out, and this is, so I brag about this all the time. Louisiana, despite, you know, while it have always ranking us low, Louisiana was actually ahead of the curve in making dollars available for this purpose. And so the Louisiana legislature in 2017, I think it was, said, hey, parishes, if you raise money locally, we'll match it dollar for dollar to provide scholarships for kids to go to preschool. And me being a competitive and then be just realistic, I was like, well, we got to get a hold of this money up in North Louisiana before that entire pool of matching dollars gets utilized by, by other parishes. So 
we just set a goal in 2021 and said, okay, Cata Parish, we're going to start with you. And if you will help us raise a total of a million dollars by contributing $900,000 as a community, Community Foundation will put in $100,000 to top that off. And then we'll go get that million dollar match from the state. Um, we did that in a very short amount of time, um, in just a few months, and got one of the first of, I think we, Cato Parish and Orleans Parish were the first two parishes to get those matches. Um, and what's been so amazing about it is because we were early adopters, um, I've actually gone down and spoken at the Governor's Early Childhood Day, um, which I should say involves Many Democrats and Republicans, I mean, this is really a nonpartisan issue. Um, Stephen Wagesback was there from Lebee, who, you know, is now actually, I think, running for governor uh, this term. But what makes me so happy about it is that it is a, an issue that all of our politicians can get behind. Our kids need preschool, right? So that happened. And when I was, when I was raising money for the funds, I'd sp I went and spoke to... All of the then city council members um, and all of the then Caddo Commission members. And the city council um, made a pretty generous grant to the fund to help support that effort. And <laughs> they probably all got sick of me, but I kind of talked about it till I was blue in the face and they had all heard it 900 times. Well, what was really amazing, I mean, the most incredible thing, I, I still can't believe it happened. Last fall, city council unanimously voted, along with major support from the mayor, to allocate nearly $3 million for this purpose, for scholarships for kids to go to type 3 child care centers, and it's kids ages 0 to 3. And this is, let me just interrupt, this is on top of the $2 million you've already secured at that so point. We, yeah, so we secured... Two million in 2021, and we and we gave out scholarships, and we spent all of that money in 2022. You only have a year to spend the state match. Okay. So we're coming up on the fall of 2022, and I get a call um, from several people at the city saying I need to tune in to the meeting that's coming up, and I want to be really happy. And they unanimously voted without comment to allocate nearly $3 million so kids could go to preschool. And the cool thing is that money is eligible for the state match. So it can be $6 million and will be $6 million here very shortly. Um, so average cost of sending a kid to preschool is about 9500 a year. Um, so with our $2 million, we scholarshiped, I mean, it was over 200 kids. Um, and then, you know, you're going to, it'll be three times that many with the money that the city has now made available. When we first took this on, it was community foundations. You know, we, we do pilot programs to provide data to um, larger purse holders to show them why things are important. And so I, I you know, said, we're going to do this for three years. We're going to raise a million dollars every year for three years. And then we're going to have this really great data cohort to show the city, to show the parish. And they didn't wait on me. They just went ahead and did it. And I was, I can't even tell you beyond thrilled. Um, and the meeting that the city announced this to us and all of the people in the early childhood space, I mean, we were just flabbergasted. Um, and think, too, you know, not only are you supporting kids and their families and the employers of 
their caregivers, but you're also supporting 55 type three childcare centers, right? I mean, these are all local businesses, private businesses that really struggled during COVID because people pulled their kids out. And so, you know, um, they're, the more money that, you know, there is available for scholarships, the more children that they can bring in and the more revenue that they bring in for their businesses. So it really is like win, win, win. Um, so that is the state of the, the money for Shreveport. I am beyond thrilled. So we started this year raising money for Bossier Parish. Um, Bossier Parish is, is smaller and then, and I'm maybe misquoting the number, but they have maybe 15, 17 type three childcare centers. And, um, and obviously their population is smaller. So we don't, I got together with, um, the superintendent of schools and their early childhood network to talk about, you know, what, what, what should our financial goal be? And so we're, aiming to raise 400000 to get a $400,000 match um, for Bossier this year. So this is the first time we're doing that. We just launched that a couple of months ago, so I'm excited about that. Um, and then, you know, I think it'll be interesting. We may find, we were lucky in Shreveport that we had lots of centers, and, and many of them that raised their hands and said, I have capacity to expand if I had, if I knew that revenue was coming so I could hire the teachers, expand my classrooms. In Bossier, I'll be interested to see if the demand ends up being larger than the supply um, there because, you know, there's just more rural area in Bossier. Um, and so another thing that the state is doing is allowing people to have really small child care centers um, that are licensed out of their homes. So they have maybe five, ten kids. And so that's a really good option for kind of our rural areas of the parish. So, Do we think this match will, will remain in, in indefinitely from the state or do you see any kind of um deadline or, or, or closing there's there's no closing i mean i think you know as administrations change so may budgets you know and so you know i, I keep reminding myself i can never get um complacent about the message because um you know you have new i mean we have like a lot of new people in city council this year. Um, we have a new mayor. And so it's, and there are, you know, we're going to have a new governor um, at the end of, is it the end of this year um, or next year? And, you know, so you just have to constantly keep that message at the forefront of people's minds. Um, so those large pools of funding, like the one that the state has, don't go away. But I do think Louisiana has been a real leader um, in the country on that, which is thrilling to me. And nobody ever talks about that kind of thing but we were really out front on that I think and in terms of what you have let's say you have six million now mm -hmm. do you feel like that is what you need at least for the time being to support all the all the needs in in Caddo Parish yeah we're really careful about not we don't want to over raise money because first of all the state money has to all be spent within one year's time or you have to give it back and we're not we don't want to give back a dollar um, and then you know we don't we want to carefully pay attention to the demand because, you know, it's not, not every parent wants to send their child to a child care center at age one, nor do we expect them to do that or at age six months or three. Um, really, this is a choice that any, every family should make for themselves. And so we can't just base the demand on the number of children in the community. I think we have to really understand the real demand um, from that the community is saying it, it needs and wants, right? 
And if someone's listening, what's the process or procedure if, I, if I'm a family in need and this is something that would be greatly beneficial for me? Yes. How do I access you or access these funds or how do I begin the process to possibly qualify for so a scholarship? We, the state has made it easy in that everything is housed at the at Caddo schools, even though these are not technically schools that are funded by the state, right? Because they're privately owned. But you, the what they've done that I think is brilliant is made the application process um, be essentially the same for these preschools as it is for Caddo Parish schools. So you go um, to the Caddo Parish schools website and they have, um, it's called the Caddo, uh, it's the Caddo Ready Start Network. But I think that the actual website is Caddo Smart Start. And what you can do is go in, start the application process there, and you'll get a list of all the schools that are available. And you, as a parent, pick which one works best for me, what's closest to my home, what's closest to my work. And then you can call or they will call to see if there's availability at that school. And if there is, you match, they'll match you with funding, provided you qualify for the funding and the school, and, and kind of take you through that process. And the great part about it is once you've done all the I mean, you know, the paperwork is a little bit headache because you have to show your monthly income and that kind of thing. But once you've done that, um, you've done it. And those are this, really the same pieces of information that you're going to have to provide the parish when your child goes to kindergarten. Um, so, you know, it's a great kind of seamless transition from preschool to public school, even though they're not run by the same organization. So that was, I think, a really great thing the state did. So. I'm so proud of that work y'all done. I think it's Thank remarkable you. and um, I've just kind of hit the iceberg in terms of wrapping my head around and arms around. What, well, and I have to say too, you know, this, I mean, this was not just a community foundation. There were so many folks involved in this, um, you know, had some real champions um, on the city council. The mayor was a champion, both uh, Mr. Downey and Dr. Gorey from Caddo and Bezier Schools were champions. Um, the, I mean, anybody from the DA to the chief of police showed up and signed off on us doing this because they all know how important it is. Juvenile court judges. Um, I mean, it's just one of those issues that everybody agrees is so important. And so if without all of those folks supporting it and talking about it, we never would have been able to do what we did. You know, I basically... I'm the I'm the one that ra waves my arms in the air and tries to get the money, but that it was a huge community wide effort, and that to me is how you really affect change is by bringing large groups like that together. Which I was going to say, I mean, it, it's a, it's an illustration of your mindset, which I I find you to be very collaborative and and very open and and welcoming and wanting to leverage those resources and bring people together to achieve a common goal. So um, well, thank I, you. I'm going to give you some credit, even if you won't give yourself the credit. Well, I'll tell you what, too, what I know this is so funny, but one thing that thrills me to, to, and it's a, and I'm totally, it's a personal thrill, but uh, I love when I figure out how to get, use our dollars at the community foundation to leverage dollars from outside of the community. I love that. I love that. That to me is such a huge win when I can figure out how to bring in Ex dollars that are external to the community that we don't have access to, you know, be a federal grant, state grant, whatever the case is. Um, that is, um, those are my biggest wins and like personal excitement to me because, um, you know, not everybody gets the chance to do that 
for a living. It's a pretty good gig, right? <laughs> but it's hard. So, it's complex. And, yeah. Um, so not everyone gets a chance, but it's very hard to navigate that and, and crack that nut. Yeah, it's, so. I mean, that's, that's my favorite thing to do. So. Well, huge congrats. Thanks. So let's um, just um, sticking with that. So the Early Childhood Education Fund was a major undertaking, a major focus of the foundation mm -hmm. since you became the CEO and has been a major mm -hmm. success. Talk to me about some of the initiatives you have your sights set on now. So, oh my gosh, if you could see my to-do list of things that I would really like to, I'm going to have to figure out like a 30-year plan. How long can I, is it going to take me to do all this? But, um, I mean, one thing that I'm super proud of is the um, SPARK initiative, you know, there is no doubt when you look at the data in our community that poverty correlates with lack of education. And I really feel like the way that we interrupt the cycle of poverty for f children and families is through education. And so, you know, oftentimes kids in poverty face barriers to educational success that we can't even fathom contemplate and maybe i'm just interrupt, maybe sure. define because i didn't ask specifically about yes. the sparks so yes. maybe just define if yes. you could so what the spark fund so the is. spark fund was set up for the purpose of raising dollars for programs that remove the barriers to education that kids in poverty face and so we um this was the first time that the community foundation made um, a multi-year funding commitment ever. Um, and it was one of the first things I pitched to the board, but essentially when I got to the office and started looking at all the nonprofit partners and programs, I was really in awe of the outcome data that the communities and schools program at Volunteers of America was showing. And at the time, I think, and, and Paula, my predecessor, had a, a big hand in bringing communities and schools here for the first time, as well as um, Dr. Gorey, uh, Chuck Mann, who formerly ran the VOA, and also Carolyn Gonzalez, who um, is the best data miner in town. <laughs> um, but so it was already here. But the data that they were showing for the kids that they worked with in a case management setting um, was so incredible. And to me, I thought, well, if this is working so well at these three schools, why are we not doing it at every school that needs it? So I had a meeting with a couple of donors who, it's funny how everybody, people start to think the same thing at the same time, independently of one another. Cause at the same time I had a couple of donors come to me too and say, Hey, this is looking really good. So we went to Dr. Gorey and to check me in and said, well, could y'all expand? And if so, how would you do it? And they really carefully worked through an expansion plan to take um, communities and schools from, I think then three or four schools to now, yeah, I think the ultimate goal is 16 schools um, next year. And, you know, it's, it's a simple model. What it does is pair kids that are struggling with um, a CIS uh, coordinator and they set goals with the kids and their academic, their behavioral goals, and then there are uh, attendance goals. And, you know, just that helping hand that they get, um, 
and the little extra support that they get, the data is incredible as to how much better those kids are doing. Um, and there's one, the, we've now got some longitudinal data because this has been happening for uh, seven or eight years now. And what one of the schools, and this is the best data point for all the schools, but one of the schools, the kids over, I think over three years that were being case managed had their ELA scores, English language arts scores were 300% above wow. their peers that weren't receiving that service. And what really um, got me excited about the model is Communities and Schools is a big national program, and they, because of that, they have the ability to really uh, look at their return on investment and their own outcomes. And one of the things that they've demonstrated in their data nationally is that <clears throat> if you work with about 10 or 15% of a school population intensely, the rest of the school also ends up doing better. They end up having higher scores. They end up having better attendance and better behavior. Um, you, you don't have to work with every single student at the school. And that, to me, I mean, what a great return on investment. So, um, you know, looking very intensely at um, things that are really showing incredible outcomes and supporting them more um, and not being afraid to support them more, um, you know, is, is something that we've done. Um, things that, that I think are, you know, when I look at a problem in the community, I, I say, okay, I mean, at first we'll say, okay, what are the biggest problems? And then I go, what can community foundation actually affect change to? Cause there are a lot of things that are outside the scope of, you know, anything that we could assist with or control. So, um, but there are problems that our community has that really are preventable and manageable. Um, if I think you put together a group, kind of like we did with the Early Childhood Summit, and the, one, of, one of the issues that bothers me the most is the low birth weight um, rates of our babies being born here. It's the highest in the state, and our state is the highest in the nation. And so we are the highest in the nation in low birth weight babies. And re the reason that matters is low birth weight correlates with all kinds of um, educational and health problems throughout a child's life. Now, it's statistics. Of course, we all know children who are born underweight and are extremely successful. But we know the healthier we can get a baby and a mother, um, the better off they're going to be from the jump. So it's almost like looking before kindergarten readiness and saying, what can we do um, to promote healthy pregnancies in our community? And, you know, overwhelmingly, the low birth weight babies are born to African-American mothers in our community. I mean, that, that is very skewed. Um, and, it, you know, this is a preventable issue. And so um, figuring out why that is um, and then how we can help is something I think that's really important and top of mind for me. And then um, another thing that we're really thinking about and trying to figure out and work on is how do we bring, you know, kids face adversity every day. And I think, you know, when you have adverse childhood experiences, the only way to combat those really is by building resilience in a child. And so it's figuring out a way that we can respond to adverse things that have happened in a kid's life in such a manner that will 
make them healthier going forward. So there's a great study, this Kaiser Permanente study from a while ago, um, that basically says, you know, if you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, they call them ACEs, um, you're going to be more likely to have all these negative things happen in your life. I mean, from anything from like substance abuse to um, being diabetic to um, dropping out of school. Um, and, you know, preventing, we can't prevent every adverse thing that's going to happen in a child's life, but figuring out how we can respond to those. And I, I really believe if we could provide some um, counseling for kids at, the, at school sites in the way that we provide, you know, we already provide medical care for kids at many school sites in the community. I mean, their parents have to say it's fine, of course. Um, but, you know, we're, we've got, um, you know, one of our nonprofits, David Rains, is getting ready to start doing eye exams on site for kids. Um, you know, and that removes the burden of transportation and all kinds of other things. You know, if mom can't get off work to take you to the eye doctor to figure out if you need glasses, why can't we bring the glasses to you? So doing the same thing in sort of the mental health space um, for kids, I think, would be amazing. And then um, Medicaid is available for that purpose. They sure don't give you a whole lot of money for it, but we're going to figure that out. <laughs> I'm that's what I'm working on. I want to figure that out. So because there are sources of funding available. And that's a big, I mean, that's a big funding lift, you know, and trying to figure out what those sources are and how we can bring them into this community. And two questions. This is similar. What you're talking about is similar to what that was piloted at university with with VYJ and some and somewhat. So one thing that Volunteers for Youth Justice that's another organization that we work really closely with, and they're fantastic. They have done um, they have a, n a number of different models in the schools, but um, you know VYJ started off with schools working on the issue of truancy because VYJ found that most of the kids that were coming to juvenile court because they were truant for many, many days were elementary school children, right? And, you know, it's not generally their uh, choice to not be there. Um, and so how do we work with families? I mean, clearly those families are struggling to get their kids to school, but, but I think for a long time juvenile court didn't ask why. And now, I mean, our juvenile judges are so amazing. Now, you know, what they want to know is why is that happening and how can we help you? And so VYJ is intensely involved with um, not only figuring out truancy issues now, but on school sites going in and providing um, calming spaces for kids who are having serious struggles at school. Um, and rather than, you know, having a kid... Um, I mean, say you have a kid who has something very traumatic happen in their house or neighborhood and they're up till two in the morning and they're seven years old and then they're in class and they're very disruptive. Well, I think, you know, the it, sending a kid to the office and booting them out of class when they need to learn um, really doesn't, it doesn't help them. It's really just a tool that you can use so that other children aren't disrupted, right? And so what VYJ does is figure out what's going on in that kid's life and how can we assist the child today so they can, they don't miss a whole lot of school and they can go right back into class, you know, and particularly with young children, you know, they may or may not be able to articulate what they're upset or angry about. Um, and, you know, we think teenagers are better, but 
perhaps not. So um, I think, you know, providing those safe spaces for kids to be able to do that and then return to the learning environment with little interruption so they don't miss content is really important. And when I was in your office a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about this, these the potential for these wraparound services. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it kind of fits in with everything we've discussed? So, um, right. I mean, I think you have to, education is just a piece of the puzzle for um, a healthy child that turns into a healthy adult. And so you have to make sure that all of the needs of the child and their family are being met as well. Right. And if, you know, if you're working with a child and tutoring them after school, but you know, they have some intense um, issues happening at home. If you don't help their parents and caregivers offer assistance, try to figure out the why, then you know, you may not be changing the trajectory of the child, really. So trying to holistically um, help kids and families and make sure that they have, you know, their, the needs that they have met. And, and understanding that everybody's needs are individual. You know, we can't just come up with some cookie cutter. This program with these three components will help everybody. Um, and, you know, listening and being really open um, to what people need and want is important. I mean, you know, one of the things that I have learned the most in this job and I have to tell myself all the time is, you know, when I'm entering into a new sphere or a new conversation to be open and humble and listen really intently um, to whoever I'm meeting with because, I mean, there's no way – um, I can know everything that's going on in the community. It's impossible. Um, and I only have the life experiences that I have. And so um, I think that is what kind of wraparound services for kids provide is really listening to the kid and the family and understanding what their true needs are, you know. But aren't you looking, you're looking into a solution that would maybe go into the homes uh, or something that would, would, uh, create a, create some sort of um, something after school mm -hmm. in the homes where you're actually looking at what's occurring in these homes or uh, how can we actually assist the parents as well or how can we I mean like you said holistically how can we how can we be a, a bigger part of the solution well I think it's I mean there's not really one program in particular so much as um, I mean I think providing counseling for kids and families across the board access to would be incredible and I think is very needed, but also making sure, you know, th the school system is a really great place of connectivity because, um, you know, when you hit five, you got to go. <laughs> and so we have so many nonprofits like VYJ, like VOA that are working in the schools with kids and their families and just making sure that, you know, the, that, and the nonprofit partners are all doing this. I mean, they're amazing at it. And making the connection with the not only the child but the caregiver as well to understand what the caregiver's needs are. Um, you know, because if you don't meet um, the needs of the parent, you're not going to meet the needs of the child. Um, one of the things that um, Step Forward is doing at the Community Foundation is putting together a parent advisory panel and also wants to put together a community advisory panel. So we have what we have a teen advisory council right now 
where we basically have lots of high school students from lots of different area schools sit on an advisory council and tell us really and truly what their needs are um, to be successful in high school. And so, you know, ideally we would have a group of parents doing the same thing and then an even larger group of community members from all neighborhoods in the community saying, this is what my community needs. Um, because I, I can't venture to guess what everybody needs, nor do I want to because I have not had, you know, I've only had my own experiences. So I think that is really, really important and something that we're building um, currently. So. Well, you're doing amazing things. Um, this community is like extraordinarily fortunate to have you. Is there anything else I didn't touch mm. on? Um, because um, I, I could gladly sit with you for days and have these discussions because you see more than most people have the opportunity to see. And, um, I think it's really important. You know, we wouldn't be the, we wouldn't be able to do the work that we did without the donors that we have um, and the donors that came before them and that trust us to make decisions for them philanthropically and, and help them do that. Um, you know, the, their support and trust is what enables us to do what we do every day. And if we didn't have that base, we couldn't. Um, and they're a big piece of that puzzle too. You know, we, when I think about how you affect community change, you have to have many, many partners. You have to have donors, you have to have nonprofits, you have to have community members, you have to have politicians. I mean, it's, it is not, there's no way that you're going to do anything great with one entity. Um, I mean, it's so much bigger than one entity. So um, I'm just really thankful to all of our partners um, that we work with um, on a regular basis and how open they are to working with us. And, you know, um, and I would like to have more partners. Keep them coming. <laughs> so, um, and I, I find um, everywhere that I go on a daily basis, I'm learning new things about the community. I mean, I never... It's fascinating. It never, I never stop learning about, you know, different pieces of the community and needs and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, just keeping my ears open is something um, that I remind myself to do every day, you know. So. Well, thanks for yeah. being vigilant Thank for you. us. Thank you. And thanks it's, for being here. It's, a, it's an honor and humbling. So. Great to have you.